Broadcasting from the business capital of the world, this is the Podcast Business News Network. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. I am Ross Morasa with my guest today, or I should say returning guest, George Turnage, a.k.a. Papa Yatande, to many people around his world. He is one of the leaders at the Lapeer Steel Haitian Sanctuary in Philadelphia. George, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Ross. Now, we've had numerous conversations, and I had some things I wanted to talk to you about today, which maybe we'll get to. However, you threw a, you threw a zinger at me where you said that you are now working on a book. So what's, <laughs> yeah. what's that going to be about? Is it a murder mystery? Oh, I would love to write a murder mystery. Uh, but unfortunately, I had to start with uh, um, what my godkids were pressing me to do about the information that I have. I mean, after really 45 years of being involved in um, spirituality and learning all the things that you learn, helping all the people that you know, and still helping people, um, they said, start writing some of this stuff down. And they said, I, I didn't know what to, like, what to write. And they said, why don't we start from the beginning? Mm. So I put uh, something on paper called uh, How It Began. And I just started writing how I uh, started. So is that your working title right now for your book? It's the working title right now. I'm sure it's going to change because um, after talking with such illustrious writers and producers, you know, like yourself, uh, <laughs> like, like Ross, I figured, you know, I'm just throwing something out there to see if it stick against the wall, you know? <laughs> you know, you'll find as you write that um, when you have something that doesn't work, it allows you and everyone else around you to start to get closer to what would work. But inside of that story of, you know, where it all began sort of concept, where did it all begin? 14. I was age 14. Oh. We... um it just uh, we'd moved from uh, uh, Maryland by uh, my mother getting a job uh, with the government at uh, it used to be called a food fair. And uh, she was an accountant for them. This was way back uh, when you had stores like A&P and things like that here in Philadelphia. Um, so we, we moved here and unfortunately she was hoaxed by some people who she thought had her best interest and put her money down on a home, Mm -hmm. which we uh, came to Philadelphia to find that, to discover that all of that was untrue and that she had gotten arrested from squatting. I mean, my mother with six kids, right? And so we were scared to death because we had never seen a place like Philadelphia. And we were in Germantown with the brick cobble streets and the, the row housing and stuff like that. We had never seen uh, places like that, not out of North Carolina and Maryland where we lived at. So um, eventually they released her and she came back home. My sister, I got to give uh, props to my older sister, Kay, who became mom, you know, and kind of held us together. And uh, then uh, we ended up leaving uh, to go to North Philadelphia she was they gave her a public housing place on uh, uh 1557 North 9th Street and so we were glad to pack up what little stuff they that we had they gave her a person with a moving truck 
and uh, we had a little Volkswagen rabbit. <laughs> if you can remember, if I don't even know if they make the rabbit anymore, but uh, and it was a it was um, late December or mid uh, uh, early December. It just turned December because I was about to turn fourteen years old mm-hmm. on December the ninth, and it was a I mean in a snowstorm that was blinding and it had crippled all of the city's utilities and things like that. But we were able to make it um, following the, the, uh, the moving truck onto ninth street. And when we turned on ninth street, we saw our hearts just sank because on the left hand, on the right hand side was nothing but because it's going North on ninth street after the, the fill off the famous or, uh, Philadelphia Bridge, the Ninth Street Bridge. So we make a left, and on the right we see all of these houses. But on the left, there was buildings that had been burned out from Ninth uh, and Jefferson all the way to Ninth and Oxford, and it it just sank us, you know. And so when we got there, long story short, uh, it began uh, to be uh, one of the best places all the best things that had ever happened to us because not only did the local gang Oxford street gang came to visit us to let us know who they were, but we met the leaders of the gang, like Charlie Brown, one inch Bobby Leach, you know, were these, uh, was this a friendly introduction? It was a very friendly introduction. They came to see our little Southern accents and uh, meet my mother who, is always hospitable and invited them in and and had food cooking and set them down at the table, served them wine. And they were like, you know, my God, you know, they didn't expect any of that. And we were a musical family. So we began to play music and stuff. And Charlie Brown had announced to the entire community and even surrounding gangs that we were untouchable. You know, so it, it it became something that was incredible because they introduced us to the R.W. Brown Boys and Girls Club uh, in the next hundred up at Ninth uh, and Columbia. That's where it used to be. It, it moved over to Eighth Street, and um, we were it, it it changed our lives. But um, th- later on, I think I was sixteen years old, and um, I was having a a, a dream, you know, one of those dreams that you've had that you it's it's absolutely real. Mm. And I had to go to the bathroom. So I'm leaving the corner of Ninth and Oxford and telling my brother and friends, this I got to go to the bathroom. In your dream, this is what's in happening. the dream. Okay. And I leave, I run to the bathroom and to realize that I was dreaming, that I was not going to the bathroom. I was not even in the bathroom. So I jump up out of my bed to a, behold an apparition standing in the doorway and his arms were stretched out. Three gifts I give thee, sight, song, and healing hands. And I sat up and I'm, I'm, but it was so beautiful. This, like the pointed hood and outfit all the way to the floor with the shoes matching and a, a cane. And he had this, this hue of light around it, you know, and, it had diamond and uh, emerald and, and sapphires and rubies. I mean, big stones all over it. I never seen anything like that before in my life. Um, not even in, in paintings or imagination. So 
a stand up slowly and it began to back away because they came into the doorway. He couldn't come, excuse me, into my bedroom. I want to make sure I'm interpreting this right, Papi Atande. So this is now the space you're in is actually just waking up, but for real now. Yes. And you're seeing this apparition in your doorway. Yes. Okay, please continue. I go to to stand up and it backed away and I I slowly followed it out of my bedroom into the hallway as it turned to go down the hall. Long story short, I I had a sensation of going to the bathroom. I run downstairs to the bathroom. I swear I don't even remember touching any steps. I know I had to have used the bathroom. I don't remember if I did, if I flushed. I know I didn't wash my hands. And I don't remember hitting one step, getting back upstairs <laughs> to the floor looking for it. And it wasn't there. Uh, long story short, my mom told me that I met the Holy Spirit, you know, because she was very religious. And she said, you're going to have to be a preacher. Mm. And I was like, but that's supposed to be Herman. You know, I supposed to be my brother, not not me. And uh, again, long story short, I end up going, transferring from California to uh, back to, um, um, I was, uh, I had gotten caught up with the, um, Black Panther Party in Oakland, California, where I'd gone to school. And things just got real gritty. And I decided I'm going home. So I went back to Philadelphia and my brother and his friend enrolled me into Lincoln University in Oxford, PA and got me off the street and got me into school. So um, later on in the years, and I was a good student. I had, uh, by the time Everything it ended, I had a 3.4 average and a double major. And uh, I met a friend, a very good uh, friend. Her name was Beatrice Azuka. She was from Nigeria. And um, she was a classmate. And we always talked and laughed and palled around. And one day she told me in a reading she did, and called me to her room to tell me, she said, George, if you do not become a priest. You mean you like will... a spiritual reading? Is that what you're a talking about? A spiritual reading. Okay. I had never had one before. And she called me to tell me um, what she had saw in the reading and fed me some foods uh, that were white food. I know now it was for Obatala out of her culture and um, told me that, George, if you don't leave, and become a priest, you will never be anything in life. Uh, I I tried to hold on as much as I could to the end of the semester. Um, um, I just didn't want to just turn away from, from everything, but everything turned away from me. I ended up losing all of my financial aid, all of my housing, my, my campus job. <laughs> just, everything just crumbled. I mean, literally crumbled, and I ended up having to... Um, leave to go back to Philadelphia, disappointed and talking with my mom. Let me ask you here real quick, though. So because you had said that you were you were a good student. So and maybe I, I missed it what you were inferring to when you're saying this. You've now had a, basically a divine meeting. Then you've had a pseudo divine meeting through a spiritual reading. So you're starting to get some pretty clear signals. But then what why did that make school fall apart for you? From this, the the pseudo divine meeting yeah. with uh, Beatrice had came to me because she had obviously had received something through her own spiritual uh, 
uh, meetings or, or, or visitations, and it involved me. And she called to warn me. And uh, she said, George, you won't even finish school. And it, it broke my heart. I'm like, are you kidding? You know, like, you know, I'm doing great, you know. And uh, but the the birth saw actually wrote himself a check with everybody's financial aid and left to, to move to another country. Um, so everything that I had, meaning my uh, housing, uh, job, meals, uh, even classroom, I couldn't even buy books uh, for the, the last semester and ended up having to go home. And she foresaw this well before and it she, happened. She, she foresaw it. And uh, I, um, I'm talking about uh, just, just done in. So the, the, the thing that happened from that was uh, I ended up having to, um, uh, I asked my mom, I sat down with my mother and asked her, would you mind if, uh, I said, if I have to be a, a minister, I want to know if you will mind if I try to see the possibilities of African religion and, you know, and she said, you know, I mean, she was, I saw the kind of this point on at first because she wanted me, you know, uh, we were Baptists and uh, she kind of looked at me and she said, well, you've been messing around down there with them African people since you were 14 years old. Uh, I won't get in your way. And so she gave me her blessings, which, was a miracle in itself, you know, (laughs) if you know my mom. And uh, so, and here's the bad part. I went to seek everybody I knew who wore dashikis and those hats and dreadlocks and chew sticks and sandals and talked the talk, but none of them walked the walk. Mm. Not, Not one, I'm talking about, I went around all of Philly, from everybody I knew, and you name a part of Philadelphia, I can name people that I knew who lived there that were perpetrating a fraud. They they just did not know anything about African spirituality, nor could they, I mean, I was almost an embarrassment to them because the more I talked to them, the more I exposed them, and the more embarrassing it became for them. And And I was just like, God damn, you know, shame on you. You know, I'm thinking, I'm looking up to you and I'm thinking you are supposed mm. to be this, this, you know, person. And when it comes down to it, you are not. So let me ask you, Papa Yatande, do you, did you feel as though, as your recollection of these people, were they charlatans or were they just ignorant trying to practice in a way that they believed was correct? I don't think either one of those things. I think that okay. they... They were not even charlatan because they weren't practicing to try and uh, be priest. It was, um, you know, it was the 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 end of the seventies, early eighties. So, as you can imagine, the, um, the 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 black power movement and everything that it was was pointing everybody to understanding themselves as Africans. But we still had in our own minds a kind of, uh, 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 you know, kind of uh, thing that held everybody kind of back. It was okay to say, well, you know, yeah, we're African-Americans. We're, you know, we're we're black people and to dress like Africans and wearing dashikis and things. But the one sting about it all was when other cultures made fun of Africans 
uh, culture, dance, foods, uh, all kinds of rituals and things that they saw that we didn't understand. We had no understanding of what we were looking at. And as a result of it, we we were very much reluctant to kind of get involved because it was called devil worship. Mm. It was called evil. It, it was called, um, you know, just being um, bush people, you know, something like that. And we had too much pride to find ourselves being labeled as that, especially living in the United States. So a lot of a lot of us only a, only when I say only a handful of people in the United States uh, who were from the 50s and 60s, like uh, William Dubois and, and others, uh, and I can name pretty much all of them, went to Ghana, which was the first place that they went into to begin understanding Akan religion and spirituality. And then coming back, like Arthur Hall, who I met, that's what my mother was talking about, hanging down there with them African people. <laughs> and I began to hang with uh, down there with Arthur Hall, who was a um, humanitarian center and uh, taught African culture. And I began to not only learn about Ghana, but I also learned about Nigeria, you know, and different other cultures. And uh, and and in my own understanding and education with them, um, saw that this wasn't anything bad at all. Now, how old but are all, you at this point? I'm eight, eighteen. Yeah, about eighteen, nineteen years old. So you're still, so you're right. You're still in your quote unquote formative years. Yeah, um, just a kid. Okay. <laughs> and I'm going on trying to find the truth. Because I believed what Beatrice saw and read was the truth. And it was and, and I connected it with the uh, apparition that I saw that evening all those years ago when I was only 16 years old. And and so I went after it hard. You know, uh, you will find something about me is don't tell me, you know, that <laughs> you if, if you do this, you're going to this is going to happen. Because I'm going to believe you, and I'm going to do this, and I went after it, and uh, it exposed, like I said, so many people as charlatan, you know. But it's not charlatan in the fact that they were actually trying to practice spirituality, but charlatan in the fact that they were uh, perpetrating frauds well, yeah, by that... trying to look at themselves as an African cultural people eating African foods. You know, we start learning about African foods and African dancing and things like that. And you would see the brothers and sisters beating drums and dancing these dances, but none of them embraced spirituality because that was just too far. You know, they're like, Hey, you know, let's hold up now. So when I finally started meeting people like elders, old folks who I had known and finally had come in contact with that began to tell me about spirituality. uh, One of the girls who was upset with me, because uh, I kind of exposed her, um, said, well, I challenge you to come to a bembe. You know, and I'm like, a bembe? What is a bembe? She said, it's an African spiritual ceremony. I said, I'd love to go, uh, you know, because I wasn't upset with her or anything. I'm just, you lied to me, <laughs> you know, you, you know, and everything that you did and said and, and perpetrated who you were was a lie, is a lie. So she did take me to the place where I am right now, some 40-something years ago, almost 45 years ago, 
where I came to meet my who would eventually become my wife, um, Guomambo Angela Novayana Daizo, who had just become a priestess in her own right. She had gotten initiated in the Akan religion down at Arthur Hall's. But Arthur told her that she couldn't, this wasn't her religion. She had to, to go on. So she, he told her, advised her, I suggest you go to Haiti. And she... The, eventually, the country. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And she did. And she uh, met eventually uh, her and would be my godfather, Papa Hilaire Michel. And uh, he initiated her to uh, what they call a first level priest, a PT Mambo. And um, that's when I first met her, when she was doing her first spiritual ceremony for Papa Ogun. Ogun is the force of fire and iron and the law of what they call truth. And um, so uh, I came, I I was excited. I thought it was, uh, she had a lot of guests. Uh, I ended up uh, playing drums for her because one of her drummers didn't arrive. And um, she asked me, do you know how to play drums? I was like, are you kidding? I'm from... Elay Faye, you know, I'm down the out the hall. I can play drums and ended up playing drums with her. And she invited me to her second ceremony. Long story short, um, she and I, uh, um, she asked me to become a godchild, to be initiated. And I jumped at the opportunity and uh, she made me what is called a onsi, which is the first level of when you first get initiated, a godchild, what they call sapwants. And um, she and I became so close that we actually looked at the basement of this house and, and she plotted out how she wanted it to look, which she we, we were trying to imitate. I, I didn't realize that's what she was trying to do, imitate the sanctuary in Haiti. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up taking the back wall in the basement where the garage was, knocking it down extending the and then putting where the garage door was another wall with an exit door uh, a bathroom you know where the hallway would have been to go out back and start building and here i don't know anything about construction and she said well you and i can do it come on and i can tell you if you tell me that i can get water from a stone i'm gonna believe you <laughs> and i actually built all of the the sanctuary houses for Papa Ogun, for um, uh, Mayuiz, for Julie Dantor, even some makeshift place for Baron. And she had some of the other places in the, up in the front for Papa Dambala and, and a little place where, we, you know, we built as we could. And is this and, the beginnings of your La Sanctuary? Beginning. Yes, this is, this is the absolute beginning. And she and I did this eventually. You know, I because I, I always thought she was a little strict. Well, I thought she was very strict and and, and I thought she was mean, you know, <laughs> because that's but she was just driven about it. She didn't want no nonsense from anybody or anything. She had a mission. She had a mission. And eventually that's when I think I told you the story. She invited me to go to Haiti with her and I'm standing in front of the drummers and they looking at me. I'm looking at them. I'm drinking these drinks that Dominique is bringing me. And uh, began to see my first actual real voodoo ceremony because she was trying her best to 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 teach us uh, the few of us. It was only about eight of us um, that that grew to like a hundred and something people over time. But um, this was something my mom. This was this what grew out of the the vision 
that I had, something my, my mother's allowing me to pursue, uh, Beatrice Azuka, who gave me the reading in, in college, and um, me just on my own going to find, just, just sniffing it out. And so after all of these years, um, this is what I've been doing. It's the only thing that I know. That's that's why I'm, and, and in the meantime, you know, I wrote music, as you know, I've, I've performed places where we did all kinds of things. I'm a, I'm a painter. I, I uh, paint, um, I do watercolors and I do, um, I do watercolors, uh, acrylic, oil, pen and ink. Uh, things like that, and um, I have a, a a nice collection of my own works. Um, but uh, I just needed to continue to branch out. I I need to find somebody. I have a I have a story. When I finished writing, or maybe even alongside, and you can tell me if it, if it's crazy, alongside of the book that I'm writing about my own information, what I'm looking for is cut that off what what i'm what i'm looking for ross i have a story about one of the most infamous loa that everybody seems to know what's loa loa is the african or the spirit force so you've heard of bound or may have bound is the one that every hollywood picture uh, movie uh cartoons and things they imitate the one who wears all black, the top hat, the cigarette. Mm. You know, he is the enforcer of death, you know, and things like that. And um, I happen to know him very well, very, very the well. The spirit well. Yes. The spirit of death well. Yes. That very- would not be my first thought of the best friend that I'd want to be keeping around. <laughs> But you know what I learned about it, Ross, was while everybody was talking about but believe me, I, I was very afraid and intimidated by this force. We, we when we when it first came across us and Mambo or well, my wife kept telling me that we're gonna have it's gonna visit us. I wanna be clear about this, Papi Atande. We only have a couple of minutes left. Our time always goes by so quick, but when you say knowing this spirit, how um not physical, but sort of how cohesive are these communications? Is it just a feeling? Do you ever hear direct messages? Is it just sort of coming to you in your dreams? So, like, how does this relationship exist for you? It first began with a spiritual possession on my wife, and he began to talk to me. And um, and and just, you know, me having to learn the language and have to learn his culture because he's not like the other Loa. He's nothing like the other spirits. And um, he's a healer, actually. And he's one that um, then began to, I began to see uh, in my own dreams. I began, I mean, believe me, it was not an easy relationship. Uh, It was not easy for me to just get to know him and whatever. But I'm talking about a, a spirit who, I consider to be one of my best friends. He saved my life maybe two or three times because one of the, the theory is as a controller in death, if it's not your time to die and I had fallen into death, he takes and just kind of pushes you out of his territory, so to speak, 
and the other loa would just take you and they'll bring you to health. When I fell from COVID, I, I mean, I actually died. I mean, they, they showed the records. He was the one who came and helped me along. I couldn't think, I couldn't, I mean, you know how COVID, what, everything COVID does. And he was one of the loa who uh, visited and stayed with me the most to get me strong and then back over to the other side. And um, I can go on talking about him, but maybe for the next time. And the reason why I introduce him is because I definitely want to tell a story that I think that a filmmaker or somebody like a writer would be like, my God. <laughs> so, Papa Yatande, yes, let's leave it there for today because we are almost out of time. But what has come up now in our conversation today are these spiritual communications and relationships on, for lack of a better term, on a much more terrestrial level. And it's very fascinating, and I think it does warrant its own show. Is that something that we could talk about in one of our Absolutely. upcoming shows? I would, I would love that. Uh, me too. I think everybody else would. And I'll say briefly that I do talk with other spiritual healers and people that do uh, hypnotic therapy and things like that. And that moment between sleep and wake, dream and coming out of your dreams, is I hear this a lot, that that is that brief moment and fragile moment where we can connect with the spiritual world. I'm not saying it's the only way it can be done, but certainly what you're talking about, I just want to say is this is not even the second or third time that I've heard people talk about and declare what it is that you are hearing. So if you are listening to our show today, this may have sounded a little out there, but it is not. And Papa Yatande, George Turnage, I look forward to having you back on our next show and we will continue this conversation. So thank you so much for being with us today. You are welcome, and I plan to really blow your mind. Uh, we all look forward to it. And thank you all for tuning in today. I am Ross Morasso. Until next time. God bless you. Broadcasting from the business capital of the world, this is the Podcast Business News Network. They'll challenge your authority. They'll try to break your will. They'll push you to the edge of your sanity. Because that's what kids do. But this car is your territory, not theirs. Defend it. Who makes the payments? Who cleans it? Who drives it? You do. That's who. And in here, your word is law. So when you say you won't move until everyone's buckled up, you won't budge an inch until you hear that click. Never give up until they buckle up. A message from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. For more information, visit safercar.gov slash kidsbuckleup.